For harvest, this uh, passage seems to be appropriate. In 1 Kings 17, reading from verse 8 um, down to verse 16. I'll maybe just give the context. and Maybe we'll read from the first verse because it gives context, which is important. And um, this might be a time when there's no harvest, but that's appropriate as well. So uh, let's just read from verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. And the word of God says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you there. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there, gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as he was going to bring it, he called to her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went, and she did as Elijah had said. And she and he, he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The background to this is really a massive worldview question, and it is that there are two big worldviews come to collision. You've got the worldview of Ahab and Jezebel, which really is the worldview that was imported into the nation at the time. And it's a story of all these gods. There's fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and so on. That's how they understand it. They have this kind of human way of looking at the gods. So the Baal god, or Baal as sometimes we're called, he's the son of other gods, and he is responsible for the fertility because he provides the rain and the lightning and all of those things. So that's what they believe. If you said to them, could you tell us the story of life? They would describe it in terms of those gods. That would be the, the description, the narrative as we talk about the big story of why things are the way they are. And so everybody follows into that and they go through their processes each year. So their sacrifices and their worship and their cult is all about that. 
and they're, all they're trying to do all the time, their sacrifices are placating the gods, and they're pouring out onto the ground and saying, would you do the same, please? We're pouring out the water. That's what we want you to do. And, and, and that shapes their lives. It shapes the cycle of their lives. And the people who are following Jehovah or Yahweh, to them, this is entirely foreign because that's not their story. Their story is very different. Theirs is the story of the God who has brought everything out of nothing, the God of creation that we've been singing about today, and the God who entered into the brokenness of that world to provide with them a relationship. They would be his people in covenant, looking forward to the time he would bring a Messiah that they were all anticipating. But their relationship with that God was very different. He would provide for them, and he had provided for them amazingly from their, as it were, their formation as a nation that happened in the wilderness brought them through that time and he molded and he shaped them through the difficulties of that and they came into the wilderness of people and they came out of the wilderness a nation under God and they knew what that was. That was their story. And now it's been, it's been created or it's been changed by this toxic mix that has been imported from the king of Sidon and his daughter who has brought it with her. So it's a worldview conflict. Two big collisions. Who's going to win? Like we're in today, we've got a worldview conflict. Christian worldview is up against a secular worldview. We feel its pressure all the time. The tension is there in so many situations. So there's a lot of common issues that are still with us today. But the story here is that God takes a person, his name is Elijah, we know nothing about his background, we know only where he's from, a Tishbe, from the land of Tishbite. We don't know anything else about him, really. He enters into the scene like kind of literally from nowhere. And God has chosen this man. He has prepared him. And he will feature quite significantly, significantly from here on in, right throughout the whole of time. What does he do? Well, let's just go to the passage and let it speak to us. So if you want to turn your Bible to your Bible on 1 Kings, and we're just going to pick up from verse 8. There are four or five little things that we'll see in the passage and then four or five things that will be applied from the passage to us. Let's see first of all, and I did choose a theme for this year and I keep trying to remind myself of it, you know, and I called it Grace Works, which is a bit of a, you know, an oxymoron. It's Grace Works, it does, but Grace Not Works and all the other things. You can debate it whatever way you want. But here, let's see first of all in verse 8, There is grace in the instruction. God is saying to him, verse 8, now he's already gone to the brook of Cherith, that's the first situation, and he's been hanging out there. That's a place where there's been a little bit of water. The ravens bring him food, and he is sustained in that way for a time, and then it dries up. Then we read, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, which is, of course, the territory from which Ahab's wife Jezebel comes, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Verse 8, it is, there is grace in the instruction for what seems like a really hard thing will mean saving life to not only himself, but the saving of life to so many more. And it is going to be, seem strange to him. He sends him to, out of Israel, and he sends him to a widow, and he sends him into a land that believes in pagan gods that are the, the gods who are disturbing and destroying 
the minds and the lives of those among whom he has been sent to serve. So there was grace in the instruction, though it was maybe strange grace. Verses 9 and 10, there is secondly strangeness in the command. Notice how he says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. A widow. Now, you would hardly think that that was, you know, the right thing, because a widow is the most vulnerable of all people in that culture. Widow is without support. She's also a widow with a son, which is more responsibility. And it seems to be that of all the people you would be sent to, to help you at a time like this, a widow would be the last person that you would choose. Somebody with no prospects and less produce outside of Israel. That seems very strange. So there is a strangeness in the command. And then thirdly, in verses 10 to 13, there is hopelessness in the welcome. So he arises, he goes to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Not a great, not a great prospects in that. She doesn't even have the sticks. She's out gathering sticks and yeah, this isn't looking too good. And he calls to her, and he says, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Just a morsel, a little bit like this little bap that William had made. Nothing too significant. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Now, that might sound okay like you, you know. I've nothing baked, you know. I haven't had time to go to the shop, and I've nothing baked. <laughs> but then she says, I've only a handful of flour and a little bit of oil in the jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Just picture that. Here's this woman. She's gathering some sticks. She's got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil in a jug, and she's going to bake a little bit of bread for her and her son, and then she's going to die. I don't even know why you'd bother, to be honest. There's something in that picture. I'm going through the motions, but I have no hope. This is our last supper. That's literally it. It's the last supper. You can imagine what life was like for her that day. She's waking up that morning thinking, you know, every time we've gone to this little container where we keep the flour in, it's getting less and less, and she's rationed it out. I don't doubt the way you would in harsh times, and we're at the very last, this is it. After this, finished. And she's out gathering sticks. There's something so tragic and hopeless in all of that, isn't it? But then the Lord has commanded the widow. So there's always a providential process even in places where we would never think. The providence of God, a doctrine that is not often talked about today, but is so wonderfully encouraging, that overarching control of God over everything, everything, that there's nothing in this whole universe that is not under the control and the, the arranging of God, nothing. Census figures, economic situation, Wars in the world, pandemics. Is God Lord of all of that? Of course he is. We need to continue to rejoice in him in the midst of all these things. We are in recovery of a sort, but we're not. We'll never be out of it, will we? 
Because when we get out of this, we'll be in something else. If not corporately as a nation, individually as a person. And so the, the awareness of the, the providence of God over all things is so reassuring. But that's just in passing. Because while there is grace in instruction, there is strangeness in command, there is hopelessness in welcome. Fourthly, in verses 13 and 14, there is graciousness in the promise. Listen to the promises. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Those words, how many times do you come across those words? You know, those are those reassuring words. You know, it's lovely whenever somebody arrives in your situation when you have a problem, you know, whatever your problem is, say it's, you know, something in the house domestic, you know, and they arrive in their van and they get out and you're saying, oh, you're stressed, 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 and they come and say, it's okay. We can sort it. You know, immediately, that's all right. Isn't it great that there are people who can sort things? We can't, but they can. And Elijah comes along, and his first word of ministry to this woman is, don't fear. Now, she has no idea why he's saying that, but he says it. And then he goes on to say, go and do as you have said. Yeah, it's okay, go and bake your cake. But, you know, I love this little word, but first, make me a little cake. He wasn't asking a great deal, but he was asking something to test her willingness and her obedience. The Lord has commanded her. She has no idea why she's doing what she's doing, but when the Lord commands and the Lord works in the heart of an individual, they will do things they're not even aware of. But first, make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. This promise comes from who? Well, verse 14 tells us, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we're in Sidon. The Sidonians were not in Israel. At this time, many people believed that gods were simply limited to their geographical areas, so they had no control outside of their own area. So he says, the God of Israel, not Sidonia, has control here as well. He's the Lord of the whole earth, the God of Israel. He says, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord, notice, not Baal, in this great worldview conflict, sends rain upon the earth. And so there is the promise. It's the old story of Baal or the old, old story of Jesus and his love, really. That's what he's saying. Right at the very beginning, it says, that's what this is all about. It's not about your bread and your oil and your flour. It's really all about the Lord God of Israel, who controls the heavens, who is the one who controls everything. This, is, this whole story is not just about your bread. It's about something much, much bigger. And every story is about something much bigger. In your life and my life, there are stories that go on every day, all the time. But they're not just about us. We think they are. But they're not. They're about something so much bigger. Because your story, as a child of God, if you are a believer, is embedded into his story, which is so much bigger. That's why your story has hope. It's not just about you. It's not just about you, the problem you have right now or your situation right now, it's embedded in the overarching story of God for the whole universe. 
as his child, you are included in that. So there's no kind of little, oh, I'm here on my own and it's whatever it is. No. Isn't that so reassuring? You maybe came here today thinking, I've got loads of issues and struggles and things to go back to, and nobody knows about them and whatnot, but that is all part of his story in your life. It's all part of his bigger plan. So it's okay. It's all right. Elijah would say to you and to me and these things, he would say, don't fear. And then, next, Verse 15, we see there is swiftness in her response. Now, we might marvel at her faith and trust to act this way, and we do, and it's right to marvel. This woman hasn't done a degree in theology. She's just a widow with one son who later on will become unwell and die, and then that'll be another story. But God has chosen to use this widow Her faith shines through the pages of Scripture and down through the centuries to us today. Her faith, this ordinary widow. Isn't it wonderful and encouraging to you today that you you can be that person around you, you can shine out into this world? Yeah. Because the final thing we see in verse 16 is that while there is all these other things, there was a fullness in the daily supply. I think it was more like a trickling stream than a full water tank. Do you know the idea? You and I would love the full tank. You know, most of us would prepare to, well, we think we would. You would rather to have it all stored up. You know, so it's all there. You go to bed at night, you put your head down and think, I've got goods laid up for many years. That sort of way. It's not what God does, is it? God says, I'll give you what you need today. And tomorrow. That's why when he says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Keeps us trusting. Keeps us praising. Keeps us resting. Keeps us without stress. Who wants a big tank full? It's only a lot of stress, isn't it? The more we have, the more we stress about. Maybe your oil tank's getting very low and you're looking at it and you're wondering how you're going to fill it up. It's okay. I don't know how he's going to provide you the heat for the winter or the other things or whatever else it is in your life at this moment. I have no idea. But he will. He might take you right to the wire. He most likely will take you to the wire, actually, I think. He generally does that. Because the closer we get to the wire, the more we sense his glory in the midst of it. Now, I know you're maybe going to be ringing me up sometime whenever you're right out, and you're going to say, you told me God would provide, and I'll say, go and see William, because he knows how to sort this out. Maybe the Lord has given him the word. And it may well be, it may well be that it is through a William or a Mary or a Jean or a John or somebody, because the resources are in this building. And the food bank might be in Lisburn, but there might be some of us need to go to the food bank. We always think that there's somebody out there, but you know what? The world's changing. And if the Lord brings us to that point, should we, should we be sad? No. We might be humbled, but we should be glad. That's not a bad thing. But let's have a look at what this has to say to us. There are four things I think it has to say. Remember this, that Matthew 6 is absolutely true. 
In Matthew 6, that you are of more value than many birds. You know, your heavenly Father knows what you need. Remember that, but that's not what this passage is teaching. Sometimes when we come to this passage, we look at it and we say, it's all about God providing us what we need. It's not really. So what is it about? Well, first of all, God preserves his servants until their work is finished here. What was God doing with Elijah? He took him out of Israel where there was nothing. He brought him to the brook Cherith, and then he put him over in Zarephath. Why did he do that? He did that because he wanted to sustain this man. He wanted to feed this man. He wanted to care for this man so that he would be able to fulfill his work until the end of his time. That's what it's about this moment. Now, would you far rather have a passage that said to you, God can provide you with your daily needs or that God will keep you to the end of your days? Always, until your life's work is finished. Would you rather have that? Of course you would. He's offering us something in this passage that's so much bigger, so much grander, so much fuller. This is not a guarantee, guarantee of longevity, but it is a guarantee of completion. It's a guarantee of completion. I remember the day I went to visit my sister in the hospice in south, in, in south of London one day. It was the last time that we had time together, and she said this to me. She said, I think I have done everything I was meant to do. She was 47 years old. I think I have done everything I was meant to do, and I was really challenged by that. Because that is what this passage is telling us. God will give you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. That's what he was doing for Elijah. That's the first thing I think it teaches us. The second thing is that grace is extended to many widows. This is not just about this widow. Because she is receiving not just food, that, yes, food, Provision, constant provision. She will receive her son back from the dead and, and, and a little later on. But she, above everything else, she is receiving grace. And who is she? She's a Gentile. And who am I? And who are you? You're a Gentile. Unless perhaps you happen to be in here and you're a Jew and you're a Messianic Jew. Or you're, you know, that's another story. But we're all children of Abraham, according to the teaching of Scripture. And as a consequence of this, we see that God is preserving his people that the Messiah may come because he cares for all the widows and the widowers, all the nations of the earth. That's what we see in this. This is God's, the foreshadowing of God's great promise to Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That again is a much bigger thing than just God looking after one widow. So we're starting to see the big picture of what God is doing. The third thing is that grace rejected becomes grace extended. You see, Israel has rejected the grace of God. And that's why God sends them out of the land. He promised the nation that when they would disobey him, he would give them famine of two things. One would be a famine of food. The rains would be withheld. That's what's happening when Elijah prays that it will not rain that God will be true to his promise. And the second thing was that he would give them a famine of hearing his word. So he took the man who brought his word away from them so they don't get the word. And that's what's going on. So the grace rejected becomes the grace extended. 
But there's something here that we need to notice as we think about that, that we are to be warned in this about the danger of neglecting or ignoring the grace of God. We can receive the grace of God and receive it gladly. That other harvesty parable of the sower puts that point across very well. There were those who did receive it and those who received it with joy and there were those who received it ultimately to a great end that they became fruitful people. But only one of the four locations where the seed fell produced that. There were three that it was meaningless and useful, even though it was a little bit of indication of growth at the time. We might well have the inner hearing of our hearts removed from us, even though we continue to be in the place where that truth is declared. And that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? You may have been hearing the gospel for many years, and you've been maybe listening to it, and you have heard it. You have heard it sometimes very particularly. You know, you've been very conscious of its application to your life, its truthfulness, and, and you've, you have, you've played with it maybe even, and you've pondered it, and, and maybe you haven't actually received that grace, like this woman and you've not obeyed what the dictate of the gospel is that we should repent and believe. But the powerful challenge of this is that those who sometimes reject will find that they lose the inner hearing. You may stay in the external hearing, but you don't hear it again. Just it's gone. Your capacity, whatever that moment, that it's a mystery to all of us. We can't explain it, but we know it's a work of the Holy Spirit. So that's something to think about carefully. And finally, the Last Supper, verses 10 to 16, the Last Supper, what does it challenge us about? Well, obedience is always invited in the face of promise. Are you a person who struggles to obey? I mean, whenever you read the word obedience in the Bible, do you trip over it? Do you know what I mean? You go, ah. I don't like that word. It's a bit of a, you know, it's not so easy. I like all these lovely words that are stroking me nicely, but obedience seems to just, it, it, it's annoys sometimes. Does it annoy you? It annoys me. I've had to wrestle with this word obedience all my life. I'm a very stubborn person. And I've wrestled to understand it. But when I read in Scripture, it is always invited in the face of the promise. It's never just do it. Never. It's always do it because of the grace of God. Do it. And it's always going to be like that, isn't it? For this is always pointing forward to that bread that lasts forever, Jesus Christ. So he never asked you to do anything without first having given you himself. He is the bread of life. He is the bread that goes on and on and on, like the water that never runs out and the bread that never fails. That's him. So he never asks us to, to do something for him without having first given us, so that as the scripture says, he loved me and he gave himself for me. It kind of frees us up to say, it's okay, Lord, I'll do it. I can trust you, just like this woman. 
So when we sing things like in Christ alone or in Christ my hope in life and death, we realize it's always about Jesus at the end of the day. And in him is everything. So this passage, although it may at first glance look as though it's all about having your food looked after, it's really so, so much more wonderful than that. And on this harvest day, I hope it will be a blessing to you. And I say as I say in my own congregation every Sunday, I say, this is a good passage to go home and either today or at some other time in the week to pick it up again and pray through it, these things, because these are wonderful things to, to strengthen and bless us. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that. Father, we pray today that by your grace, you would just help us to receive this word today from yourself and to understand how it relates to our personal stories. By your spirit, help us to hear and to embrace and to receive and to enjoy such wonderful, rich things as you teach us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that as the bread of life to us, oh, we will always be sustained. And it may be that some of us today feel just like this widow. Life doesn't look as if it's got too much for us. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see the bigger story your story, and that our situation fits perfectly into your doing something gloriously good. And all of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.